0: hello i'm anthony day this is the sustainable futures report for friday the 10th of july this week i'm talking about the energy industry with james spencer managing director of portland fuel is this the oil industry's end game when and why Can we expect an oil price spike? Is an electric transport fleet an impossible dream? And does the future lie with hydrogen? Insights from inside the industry. And in other news, McKinsey on carbon capture usage and storage. California legislates on electric trucks. And public doubts about the UK government's recovery strategy. But first the interview. When I do interviews, what I normally like to do is some research so I can ask some informed questions. I think in this situation, I've got no idea what to ask
1: you. When we first met in 2013, yes. I made that presentation. Yes. And coal was generating 35% of the UK's electricity, bog-standard coal. If you'd mm. said to me then that in seven, seven years, yes, that 35% would under most circumstances be reversed so that that was about 35% wind. Literally, I would have, you know, you would have been carted out in you know, a straitjacket. This guy's lost his senses. Uh, I mean, my, my take has always been, the industry's changed so much over the last 10 years. We're now in a position, I'm loath to call it a tipping point, because a tipping point would indicate that suddenly everything's changed. The reality is this tipping point has been building. As oil basically becomes less and less fashionable not only as a investor 's uh, you know the appeal to investors but also to society people don 't want to buy oil products mm-hmm. now underneath that, there is this core of usage which is very difficult to get away with, get get away from, mm-hmm. which is the likes of concrete and contact lenses and this plastic on this screen and your colored shirt and all those kind of things but the, the kind of if you want to kind of say that the, the luxury use of of oil the unnecessary use of oil, I think is set for quite a major decline, and this crisis probably the, the big if is the economic bounce back and that 's kind of what depresses me for a whole load of reasons, but I see this crisis as the tipping point which will actually accelerate a move away from um, excessive use of fossil fuels let's let's call it that way and that will start a trend which over time will end up getting rid of most fossil fuels because once the technology develops for green or let's just say sustainable replacements then that technology explodes and it can be used in more and more things so once people really start to use hydrogen as a de facto usable and Uh, realistic, credible alternative, then suddenly its uses will explode. Wrong word. Maybe not explode. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But its uses will grow exponentially. The problem is at the moment it's a fringe thing, so it can never really get a foothold in the market. But because this this whole event is going to push these alternative energies much higher to the fore, often through government subsidy, often through financial investment, because that's what people are are going to invest in, and through societal pressure, you'll see their growth really ramp up. So that, that, that's my kind of view. And I said to you the last time we met, Andy, which is, I think it's even more like, I said this before COVID-19, but one of the oil majors is going to pull out of oil exploration. I, I am in no doubt about that. And they'll do that because it will give them market advantage. Mm. They will be the first to do that, and they will generate so much kind of positive investment energy around that move that the second and the third will get less kudos and will will benefit less mm. so that, that that's my view although that was as you remember or you might remember that I kind of said that back in whenever we met yeah and I felt the mood music was is that one of the oil majors struck you know in this oil price thing the crash in the oil price so typically um, a low oil price is used as a way of recovering an economy. Yeah, so that would be the kind of counter argument to renewable fuels are going to come back into going to come into play because low priced oil, low priced gas will be too too good an opportunity for governments to miss. They'll want to get everybody working with construction projects and infrastructure, but. I think you do have two factors here number one it will be difficult to rebound the economy if we're in a long term depression and the point i made in my last all market report is that the crisis of 2008 and 2009 was very short lived actually mm-hmm. we we can un- we can argue not argue because i think most people agree that austerity was pretty tough but in terms of at a macro level, the economy recovered relatively quickly. It was what they call a V-shaped recovery. Number one, that feels difficult to see at the moment. So there might just not be that much demand for oil going forward, which will compound the current trend, which is everybody pulling out of oil exploration because the prices is low. And what I believe is going to happen is, is that I sent you that rig uh, yeah. Graph yesterday. I mean, yeah. that's just staggering. So, for the purposes of this interview, this time last year there were a thousand oil rigs in the US. Now there are two hundred. I mean, that's not halving. I mean, that's you know eighty percent reduction. Yeah. What that's going to do to oil prices is, at some point, you're going to have a massive spike in oil prices, and oil prices are going to go through the roof because even with diminishing demand. There's not going to be enough oil because all of the investment in marginal oil, so oil on the fringes, let's say, Saudi Arabia, okay, they continue Russia, but all the rest of the oil will everybody's pulling out. That will push the prices up. And again, that doesn't really do oil any favors because it's suddenly going to be hugely expensive. And by the time that comes on, yes, there's an argument that says, oh, well, at $200 a barrel, everybody will want to invest in oil again. With the rest of the piece that I've described, I feel the, the train will have moved on. And so I don't see a rush back into oil because investors have been scarred so many times by this crazy volatility. And always in the past, they've lived with that because the underlying thing, which is oil's a good thing for the Western economies, oil's a good thing for democratic governments, we want oil, that's that mood music is no longer there.
0: Right. So do you see hydrogen as the fuel of the future?
1: I do, and I feel, I suppose selfishly, um, I feel happy about that because I understand liquid energy better than I understand battery energy. So that's mm. probably you know mm. telling myself what I want to hear. Mm. But I think electric mobility uh, we have massive problems with electric mobility, ranging from the practical, which is the kind of powertrain you need for buses and trucks. Uh, they kind of ours, and I think we're proving that, that they do work for cars. But even with increasing technology, you're talking about weights of four or five tonnes for the battery alone on a truck. Yeah, so there's totally practical issues about road, road weight limits, So, you know, nerdish fact is 44 tons is the maximum limit for road weights in the UK. You take out five tons, that takes out quite a lot of capacity. In a difficult economy, that pushes up prices. So there's, there's lots of practical issues. There's resale value of electric vehicles. Almost all vehicles are based on depreciation and resale value. There's not a great deal of understanding how, electric vehicles will be recycled through the system as second-hand and third-hand sales and then that's the kind of practical economic reasons that we'd see in the west the kind of um the societal issues are the mining of this stuff i mean we just don't have enough precious metals in the world to meet the demand of global carpool and Of course, there's an argument said, well, we shouldn't be driving so much and we shouldn't be consuming so much. But, you know, good luck with that one. Eight and a half billion people is very difficult to to come up with an adequate or a sustainable solution. So the kind of mining and, you know, I I went to a mining precious metals mining conference um, about a year ago. And there was a guy there. He was. In fairness, he was, let's, let's say he was at the kind of redneck end of the scale of the attendees there. But the point he made, which was very uh, powerful to me, is that when we talk about oil being depleted, we actually know we have geological surveys that show how much oil is in the ground. Based on the projections that we're talking about for electric mobility, so cars going electric, trucks, buses, etc., etc., there's just not the precious metals on the earth and every geological study going would say there is just not enough precious metals lithium cobalt all these kinds of things that go into batteries to meet the predicted demand so it's all very well saying that electric cars and electric buses they're all going to go up to this level where's the precious metals going to come from and he said you know unless you're going to go and mine on mars and he made light of it but we just don't have that resource. So oil is bountiful, precious metals are not. Mm, mm. And I've thought for a long time, the next kind of major societal, um, social um, outrage, understandably, will be just the total destruction of Central Africa, uh, all of the bits that go with that through the mining of precious metals so we can all have electric cars. So. As a very long answer to why hydrogen, I'm fairly sure, will have a part to play in quite a major role, mainly because its power generation is very, very efficient. So whereas getting an electric truck to pull 40 tons of cargo is a very major piece of battery technology, getting hydrogen to power that there's if difficulties with supply chain, there's difficulties with safety, etc., and there may be difficulty in producing sufficient hydrogen. But the concept of hydrogen propulsion is easy, and that applies to buses, that applies to trucks, that even applies to planes. So of of all of the kind of renewables, if we can, the problem with hydrogen is at the moment it's not renewable because it comes as a byproduct of refining oil. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are other ways, aren't there? That, there are other ways. And I think the scale is the issue there, aren't they? So there are definitely other ways of producing hydrogen, mm. um, but it's getting it to the mass production that we require. So then you're back there to the argument of, well, do we want mass production? Isn't the whole point of COVID-19 that globalization and mass production causes this kind of over consumer over consumption and we don't think about what we eat we don't think about we just fly for a weekend here and you know we we disposable fashion we buy a well i don't but i'm sure you don't but you know people buy a set of clothes or a t-shirt and they wear it for a day and then they throw it away so the whole mass consumption argument is powerful but somewhere in the middle is a requirement to produce energy at scale to keep us even close to the level of development that we're used to.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, it's a question of energy density. So storing hydrogen then on a vehicle is presumably going to put less weight for range than batteries would.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely the, the less weight. I think most of the evidence is fairly clear that the price of alternative vehicles is coming down. Very oh quickly. yes. Oh, yes, yes. yes. Although not in the world that I live in, which is the commercial end. So to put some kind of numbers on, uh, I mean, hydrogen buses, you know, kind of even more. But a bus, you know, maybe your listeners will be surprised to know that a bog standard diesel bus,
0: Mm.
1: uh, new, costs about 150,000 pounds. That's just a bog standard bus. Right, okay. An electric bus is about £450,000. Oh, gosh. And if you take, uh, you know, a classic customer of ours, a municipal bus company maybe running 100 buses a year, and that's not a big operation, um, you know, someone like a go-ahead have 5,500 buses, but if you just take a, a small, not small, medium-sized town, Uh, Well, somewhere like a York. York is run by a major group, first group, but in terms of the total buses, probably somewhere in the region of 150, 160 buses. So you can kind of do the maths of where 150 buses times 150,000. If they want to go electric, 150 buses times 450,000. So number one, nobody can buy those outright. Number two, they have to be written off over a period of time, normally between seven and 10 years. Um, so, And again, in terms of a transition, even if somewhere like York tomorrow said, we're 100% going away from diesel, then you've still got 10 years of all the 10 years and nine years and eight years of all the remaining diesel buses. And there's no way that any municipality can afford to pull out of that higher purchase arrangement because you just, at that kind of cost, you cannot buy everything outright. Everything has to be written off over a, you know, a, a logical depreciative period. Yeah. And that yeah. typically is seven to 10 years. Some places try and run it for 15 years.
0: Yeah. 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 nothing simple. Nothing's nothing simple.
1: simple. Hydrogen, by the way, is more like kind of, well, I mean, there's, there's just not enough hydrogen buses to have a real, proper market value. I mean, there, there are plenty of electric buses kicking around now, but hydrogen is kind of more up to the 750000 for a hydrogen bus. Really? Yeah. yeah. But again, that, that's maybe not that helpful as a figure because prices come down when you make things in scale. <laughs> We're back to the mass production things, but uh, there's enough kind of scale in electric vehicles. I mean, you've got someone like BYD in China uh, who are, I mean, Their their hometown, which is somewhere, I think it's Chengdu, but I I don't know that for sure, but um, Cantonese city on the mainland, their whole city of 10 million people is 100% electric bus. Mm. So there are a lot of electric buses kicking around, so those prices come down. There's just not enough hydrogen buses being made to generate any economies of scale to bring the price down.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, in, in some places people are going back to trams and even to trolley buses, And then you don't actually have to carry around uh, your energy store. Um, There's one system, and I can't remember what it is, I think it's buses, um, where uh, the bus has a battery, but it stops very precisely at the bus stop and an arm comes down onto the bottom of the bus and gives it a boost for only about 15 seconds while the passengers are getting on or off. And that's enough to keep the thing running uh, throughout its route because uh, uh, and that must mean that it's uh, the, the batteries must be a lot cheaper because they're not, uh, not nearly as big.
1: Yeah. I, um, well, so there's two things on the size of batteries. I mean, that's the model with Tesla, which is, you know, so Tesla has about 100 batteries in a Tesla car. So all the batteries are kind of throughout the whole fabric of the car mm. rather than in one engine. That is a better distribution of weight. It is a problem for disposal, of course, because then you've got to dispose of 100 small batteries rather than one large. Mm. Um, uh, so that, that idea of smaller batteries is actually increasingly seen as a more efficient way of doing things. Um, the second thing, you, in Milton Keynes, a bit similar to your model that you've just described there, in Milton Keynes, they actually have magnetic coils under that one route has magnetic coils under the ground um and uh, as at each bus stop so as the bus stops then it takes a, a charge just a, a kind of momentary charge from these magnetic coils and that tops up the battery um and each time it stops it gets a top up and that keeps it going for longer etc etc so there are clearly there's quite frankly, there's ingenious stuff going on in that whole sector. Um, the bus sector has always been particularly innovative, uh, mm-hmm. probably because it's always been up against it, as, a, you know, as, a, as private cars have dominated to survive bus companies and bus infrastructures actually have to be, you know, people don't, would never think it because it's not really seen as a very rock and roll kind of world, but mm. bus innovation is, is really, up there, you yeah. know, um, yeah. amongst the best. But all of these things, as ever, are hugely costly. And from Milton Keynes, it works. If you think about Milton Keynes, the geography of Milton Keynes—it's wide roads, it's designed for the modern age, where yeah. we live. And they, you know, putting underground uh, magnetic coils in York could be tricky.
0: Yes, yes, it could, couldn't it? Yes. Okay, so we started off by talking about oil. Oil is your business in view of what you've said about oil where do you go from here
1: our business or uh, oil in general
0: well both but
1: uh, yeah um well i think i think the first thing for us i mean i've i've done this for 25 years i used to work for bp um i joined bp when climate change was not really a known thing i, I dare say conspiracy theorists would probably tell us it was but uh, mm-hmm. it, it was known but it was on the fringes let's say um I've seen the industry change a lot. Um, for me, there's a transition that is really has already taken place, I guess, with our business in terms of going from oil to um, energy. Liquid energy is probably what interests me most because of the nature of what we do in our customer base. But of course, we're as a business, we're traders and we buy and sell energy, um, and we have no real vested interest in product in the ground. So I have no interest in oil, crude oil itself. Um, you know, if the oil comes up, comes from used cooking oil and is made into diesel or it comes from hydrogen, uh, we'll, you know, we just buy the product and we sell it to our customers, be day bus, bus companies, public transport, trucking, ships, whatever. And I think probably that's the main issue that the likes of BP, Exxon, Shell, they all have this problem is that they're vested, they are wedded to oil because so much of their value is based on the product in the ground. So they have to keep it coming out the ground to generate the energy that they sell. The issue for them now is, is that there's more and more people coming in and saying, well, we can take our energy from here. So it's never going to be the full solution. But you've got diesel from waste, which is made from Uh, tallow which is animal carcasses so that is a waste product again there's a there's a powerful argument about undoubtedly about cutting down our meat consumption big big contributor to climate change probably the biggest thing we can all do as individuals is probably cut down meat consumption but as long as there is meat consumption you have carcasses and you have tallow and they in a pretty effective way can be made into diesel and so you have, uh, and that's probably about a ninety percent CO two reduction uh, in terms of the process, and then the burning of that diesel. It's actually mistakenly called hydro-treated vegetable. Most of it comes from animal, but it can also be done from vegetables. You have used cooking oil. So you have the market for used cooking oil at the moment is is massively down because used cooking oil typically comes from restaurants. So Indian restaurants, normal restaurants, you know. So across the world. prices of used cooking oil have gone through the roof because nobody's generating used cooking oil. So that's bad for the environment because that's made it much more difficult to replace crude oil diesel with used cooking oil diesel. But the point of all this is that as time goes on, there's more and more alternatives. Engines, the, the vehicle manufacturers, you know, they're not stupid. They're completely, they know to survive, they have to basically produce different models so engines are now much more tolerant to non-crude oil specific products so whereas the oil majors have a major problem in how they adjust to a new world of moving away from crude oil sadly for people like us and of course they see us as total parasites uh, because we're not wedded to their products For people like us you know it, it doesn't really matter it's a commodity. There's still going to be price volatility because of the nature of commodities. And really what it's made of is not, you know, as long as it's, you know, legal and ethical and all the rest of it, you know, but that's, that's a, a separate kind of box of what we do in terms of where the product comes from. We're not wedded to where it comes from. And on that basis, we're probably able and businesses like ours are probably able to move a lot quicker to a... A lower carbon future, simply because we have no vested interests.
0: Hmm. Well, finally, you've been talking about earlier uh, a major spike in oil prices. When do you think that's going to happen?
1: Um, I, I think the big caveat is what we talked about at the start about when the lo- when is there a second wave? Really, genuinely hope, hopeful that there won't be, but fearful that there will be. And that obviously will suppress demand. But um, if you look at the production figures, you look at American rigs going from a thousand to 200, this just staggering level of cuts in oil production. So probably at the back end of this year. um wow, I would as soon say, as that. Yes, but I think i I'm confident of that only to a uh, 55 to 45 percent, because, in the same way that nobody really predicted, um, you know, I, met, I went to a conference in London in February, and there was quite a lot of no-shows, and I remember in the bar, kind of slightly mocking people, you know, you know, makes me, makes me sound a little bit like Donald Trump at the time, but uh, you know, saying it's just a cold, come on, you know, people have got to get used to this, and. Yeah, let's face it, none of us really predict, well, maybe some did, but most people didn't really predict the scale of this. So I think the whole COVID-19 impact, unfortunately, probably hasn't quite run its course. It's very difficult to make any predictions on the economy and things that relate to that, like the oil price, because we don't know where that goes. But as things stand, oil production cuts are immediate. Demand is a deterioration that can happen over time. Once those oil wells are stopped, they're very difficult to reopen. But more than that, even if they were able to reopen, I think people might have careful consideration about whether they actually want to be stuck on an asset that demand doesn't. There is another lockdown in 2021. Prices go through the floor again they're all scarred. I mean, you know, the bankruptcies in shale oil last year, I think this is something we've talked about. Bankruptcies in shale oil last year were already uh, something like 50% up. Mm. And that was before all of this. So, you know, these guys were up against a little bit like retail on the high street. A lot of these businesses were up against it before this. This has been the straw that's broken the camel's back. So yeah, a spike in oil price I could easily see at the back end of this year. Uh, Maybe into the spring, but um, not 100% sure. That's what makes our life interesting.
0: Yeah, it's going to make everybody's life interesting. And thank you for sharing really? some very interesting thoughts with the Sustainable Futures Report. Many thanks to James Spencer, Managing Director of Portland Fuel. And if you want to read his monthly oil market reports, you'll find a link on the blog. Talking afterwards, we discussed the fact that even hydrogen cars rely on batteries. The Toyota version is a hybrid and, like a petrol or diesel hybrid, uses the battery to store energy which otherwise would be wasted as heat in the brakes. That set me thinking about an article I read somewhere about cars using compressed air as an energy store. A little research showed that a lot of work has been done in this field, so if you want to store energy which otherwise would be wasted as the car is slowed down, why not use it to compress air? The technology is extremely simple. The tanks would not be nearly as heavy as batteries. Perhaps they could be tubes forming part of the vehicle's subframe, and no rare earths or precious metals are required. An article in Environmental Research Letters says Even under highly optimistic assumptions, the compressed air car is significantly less efficient than a battery electric vehicle and produces more greenhouse gas emissions than a conventional gas powered car with a coal intensive power mix. However, a pneumatic combustion hybrid is technologically feasible, inexpensive, and could eventually compete with hybrid electric vehicles. You'll find links to this and other articles on the blog www.sustainablefutures.report including an article about Joe Bamford's plans for his hydrogen bus manufacturing plant. It's not all good news though. The fuel cells at the heart of a hydrogen-powered vehicle use rare metals like platinum and cobalt. Rare metals are also needed for the high-performance magnets in the electric motors which drive the vehicle. The inescapable conclusion is that the future of individual private transport is looking very uncertain. Walking, cycling and electric scooters can take us so far, but certainly not all of us. And at present, public transport is to be avoided for the sake of social distancing. Public transport must be the future, but it can't play its part as long as the pandemic persists. And finally, Looking at emissions reduction, consultancy McKinsey & Co. suggests that carbon capture use and storage is the way forward. They caution that CCUS could continue to struggle unless three important conditions are met. First, capture costs fall. Second, regulatory frameworks provide incentives to account for CCUS costs. And thirdly, technology and innovation to make CO2 a valuable feedstock for existing or new products. In the article referenced on the blog, one of the uses they suggest is enhanced oil recovery, pumping the CO2 into part depleted oil wells to drive out the remaining oil. That seems to assume that there will be continuing demand for oil at a price which will justify building the infrastructure to achieve this. Another possibility is incorporating CO2 as a component of cement, effectively locking that CO2 up indefinitely. This is quite ironic given that the cement manufacturing process is one of the largest emitters of CO2 globally. Then there is the possibility of carbon neutral aviation fuel created by combining CO2 with hydrogen. Carbon neutral, mind you, it will still emit CO2 from combustion. Other possibilities include the use of CO2 in carbon fibre as an ingredient in some plastics and the creation of biochar used as an agricultural soil improver. The key to all this depends on the efficient capture of the CO2 in the first place. Apart from biochar, that's created by heating wood in an oxygen-free atmosphere. Direct air capture, DAC, is creating a lot of interest, although it is expensive, about $500 per tonne of CO2 captured. CO2 forms only 0.04% of the atmosphere by volume, more than enough to cause environmental damage, but not very much at all when you're trying to capture it. Capture from industrial processes or power generation is much cheaper, but not cost-free. The overall conclusion of the article appears to be that the potential is enormous, but storage is not financially attractive and usage requires substantial investment in research. I can't help comparing carbon capture and storage, with or without usage, to the nuclear fusion reactor, you know, the one that's going to produce endless energy for almost nothing. It'll be ready in about 30 years, as they've been saying for 30 years. Although you may remember that when I interviewed him on the 15th of May, Michael Binderbauer, CEO of TAE Technologies, predicted only 10 years. Now, what was that about the impracticability of electricity for heavy haulage? Lexology, an international law reporting site, tells us the California Air Resources Board, CARB, on June the 25th, 2020, unanimously approved the Advanced Clean Trucks Rule, requiring automakers to sell a minimum number of zero-emissions diesel, yes it does say diesel, trucks, delivery vans, and large pickups starting in 2024. The quotas will be phased in and the rules require most new trucks in the state to produce no pollution at all by 2035. By 2045, every new truck sold in California will have to be zero emission. They seem to take it as read that zero emissions means electric because they go on to say, however, many stakeholders in the trucking industry are concerned the transition will not be nearly as easy and beneficial as CARB suggests. Critics cite the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on the economy as a substantial financial obstacle to manufacturing the new cleaner trucks which will also have a high price tag. They also are concerned that the infrastructure and technology, including charging stations and batteries, are inadequate for the rollout of such a large amount of zero emissions vehicles. Shortage of batteries, eh? You heard it here first. There's a lot of discussion and controversy about how we should recover the economy as we come out of the pandemic. This episode goes to press before the announcement by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, explains exactly what the British government is going to do. Having said that, most of what is proposed appears to have been leaked in advance and to have been received less than enthusiastically. Billions of pounds make good headlines, but when you divide them out over all the organisations they're supposed to help, all the jobs they're supposed to create and so on, it becomes clear that it will be very thinly spread. It doesn't compare very well with actions taken by other countries but we won't know exactly what is proposed until after the chancellor's statement but in the meantime climate action reports new poll reveals public belief the government has the wrong priorities for covid 19 package this is a response to the announcement made by the prime minister which i mentioned last week according to climate action a poll commissioned by conservative environment network reveals that the vast bulk of the british public sees a recovery that fails the environment as bad for the economy. More than half of British citizens want to see plans involving measures that tackle pollution and climate change. I'll look next week at what's actually been promised. And that's it for another week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support, especially if you're a patron. I'm always grateful for your feedback, and I reply to every email, even from those who are not actually patrons although I have to say that others do support the Sustainable Futures Report in other ways. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron, then what could be a better time than now? Why not pop across to all the W's, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash S-F-R, and you'll find all the details. If you are already a patron, are you getting what you expected? Would you like something different? In particular, Would you like a Zoom call, and if so, when, and what would you like to talk about? I look forward to hearing from you, and if you get in quick, I could even put your ideas into next week's episode. I leave you with the thought that Rio Tinto's trains that cart iron ore from their mines in Western Australia to the port are one and a half miles long and fully autonomous. They are monitored and controlled remotely from Perth 1,000 miles away. You'd need a big battery for that. But for the moment, that's it. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Stay safe.